now. And I'll just very briefly introduce tonight's speakers and we can uh, get on uh, and hear them. Uh, the first is Dame Deirdre Hutton, who's just stepped down from 10 years as the chair of the Civil Aviation Authority and before that has a, a wealth of experience in lots of regulatory roles. Then will be Professor Kerry Collinese joining us from the University of Pennsylvania. I'm delighted that he's here where he's director of the Penn Programme on Regulation and done some absolutely fantastic internationally renowned work on regulation too. Third, we have Walter Merricks, a former chief ombudsman of the financial Ombudsman Service, uh, and also has a wealth of experience in regulatory backgrounds in health um, and law and, and the press and, and much else besides. So together, uh, they will discuss the art of regulation. Um, and I'm fascinated to hear what they've got to say, uh, what makes successful regulation, the risks of excessive regulation and regulatory capture and much else besides. And um, each of our speakers will uh, talk for five minutes and then we'll have a panel discussion um, and then some Q&A. Um, as I say, Abby's going to collect some questions, uh, so, so please uh, let her know. Um, uh, if there are lots of questions, we, we might not get through them all, so uh, please uh, bear with us if that's the case. Um, and we will be ending the seminar in an hour, an hour and a quarter, something like that, if that's okay. So uh, that's all from me. Um, welcome our three speakers. Um, I'm going to hand over uh, to Deirdre to kick us off. Thank you very much, Marcel, and, and good evening, everybody. Um, since I have the privilege of, of going first, I, I'm going to set out what I regard as five sort of ultimate truths about regulation, which I hope might um, create some questions and then talk about some examples from um, aviation in particular um, and why is regulation so difficult. But I think my, my truisms first. Number one, you have to have absolute consumer centrality in your regulatory body. That is both legally in terms of the objectives you have. So it's very hard for a regulator if they have conflicting objectives. But secondly, it's also a cultural thing. The regulator has absolutely got to feel that consumers are central. And the reason for that is really, is really putting consumers centrally is really very basic because if consumers can drive a market to get value for their particular amount of money, they then in turn will drive a competitive and responsive industry. And I think that is an absolute basic truth of regulation. I think there's been a time when people, regulators regulated what they thought consumers ought to want. And in fact, that has often led, I think, to the wrong things being regulated. So as a regulator, you need to understand what it is consumers want and what they find difficult. And for me, that means a lot of consultation. Uh, thirdly, and this is a really kind of fundamental one, the regulator needs to be recognized as having integrity. Um, and fourthly, they need to be really good at what they do. Um, there's no good having a ham-fisted regulator. You need to be expert. That has all sorts of challenges at the moment, I think. And then finally, um, the days when you could, as an organization, assert that you're wonderful are long past. You actually have to be extremely transparent in what you do so that your audience can actually see that you're expert and can see that you're putting consumers at the heart of what you're doing. We all tend to talk about regulation as though it's one thing, but in fact, there's a, you know, there are many different streams of regulation. You know, there's, uh, for example, I dealt a lot with the economic regulation of airports with major power, major market power. But in this instance, I want to talk about safety regulation. Um, 
and it's really important. Do you think about Grenfell Towers and the number of people who died there? That, when you go into that, as I ha have done um, with um, various consultations that have gone on, it is the most shocking example of regulation, safety regulation that doesn't work. And I can come back to that sometime maybe in the discussion. But of course, safety actually applies to a whole range of things. It's not just life and death, but if you think about financial services, you want your money to be safe. And actually the same principles of safety uh, will apply in an area like that as well. There are also very many challenges and aviation, um, which incidentally is completely, has been a completely fascinating 10 years, um, it provides some very useful examples of the challenges. And the first one I would bring up is new things developing um, and all over the marketplace, whether it's aviation or anywhere else, you see new things developing. And how do you, as a regulator, ensure that you both encourage innovation, you don't stifle innovation, but you also make sure that it's regulated in a sensible way. And the example I would give from aviation is unmanned aerial vehicles, flying taxis. We're gonna have flying taxis in a couple of years. How do we ensure that we put the right level of safety in there, but not wrap it round so much that no um, industrialist wants to do it? And what sort of, as, as these um, very highly technical areas develop, and um, you know, it's happening in social media as well, for example, what sort of staff do you need? How do you keep your staff up to date? Um, how do you train them? Do you need different sorts of people? Um, do we need different sorts of pilots? Do we actually, as planes become more and more autonomous, do we actually need as pilots people who are very good at um, computer games rather than the traditional XRAF pilot? Um, what I've observed over the very long time I've been a regulator in one sort or another is that it's actually very difficult to, to regulate if the industry that you are responsible for is lacking in a basic sense of ethics. And this has really come home to me with um, aviation because aviation is formidably safe. Um, it's quite extraordinary. It's much safer than any other form of transport. And they have in aviation a very well-established thing called just culture. And that means that whether you're a pilot, an engineer, a cabin crew or anything else, every time you do something wrong, you fail to do something, you notice something wrong, you report it. And you report it in the expectation that it will be used to make things safer rather than be used as an excuse to sack you. And that is such an ingrained culture in aviation and I think is one of the really fundamental things that makes it safer. The other thing rather basically uh, is skin in the game. Um, if a plane goes down, the pilot goes down with it. Really fundamental. So you're giving the pilot an absolute um, motivation, the same as the passengers, uh, to do it all safely. And I think those two things, just culture and skin in the game, are really interesting. How, how is it possible to bring those two qualities, which I think are unique to aviation, into other areas in a way that works for those particular industries? So in my conclusion, I hope I've had five minutes. Uh, I think regulation is a really, it's a really good thing done well, but it is astonishingly difficult to do it well. So I'll stop there. Uh, well, goodness me, what a great way to finish there. Uh, it is a very difficult thing to do well, uh, indeed. Lots of food for thought there. Let me, let me pass straight to uh, Kerry and you can pick up the baton. Great. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. And uh, it's always humbling uh, and an honor to 
be on the same stage as uh, Deirdre Hutton, and I always learn so much from what she has to say, and 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 today is no exception. And in fact, I guess I want to build on her last point about how hard it is to do regulation well, and I want to I want to anticipate at the outset a question that some members of the audience might have. This is a panel on the art of successful regulation, and some audience members may be wondering, is that an oxymoron, successful regulation? Uh, 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 Deirdre mentioned the Grenfell Tower. Uh, here in the US, we look back to the financial crisis of 2007, 2008. Uh, we, we had a major, major uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010. We've had major mining accidents, pipeline explosions most recently. Just uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've had the whole state of Texas uh, where the power system failed because the regulations didn't ensure that power companies properly insulated for cold weather. Uh, and at every time one of these disasters occur, especially when lives are at stake, the follow-on diagnosis is that regulation has failed. And, uh, you know, it, it, even when regulation isn't failing, we do hear from politicians that it is failing by being too restrictive and constraining. In the U.S., Republicans will rarely use the word regulation without the words job killing in front of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think to examples of Boris Johnson holding up uh, little plastic wrapped fish and, uh, you know, railing against the European regulation of the Kipper, only to realize uh, and be shown later that there was no European regulation of Kippers. <laughs> but uh, politicians can criticize uh, regulation uh, for being too constraining. And we do see, you know, highly salient failures. And one might well wonder, is regulation really working at all? And I wanna say, yes, it is. It's just that the successes are not as visible and salient. The success of regulation is occurring every day. Every time a plane takes off safely, every time a person can walk into a bank and apply for a loan and there's liquidity in the credit market, that's successful regulation. Uh, every time people are eating food without being sick. Now you may say, well, there's also other reasons why the markets would protect people. Uh, you know, airlines wouldn't stay in business if planes were crashing frequently. There's no question about that. But we can see documented instances where it's demonstrated that regulation really made a difference. Regulation really made the difference in the U.S. when our Food and Drug Administration took off the market the drug thalidomide and saved tens of thousands of birth defects. Regulation had a demonstrable effect on improving the air quality in the U.S. US by eliminating lead from gasoline, uh, one of the most important public health measures in the country. You can look cross-country uh, building regulations. Here's a great example. Uh, take three earthquakes that occurred in relatively the same uh, time period. Nepal, uh, 2015. Nepal did not have modern building codes in place. 
and they suffered uh, from a major earthquake, 9,000 fatalities. Mexico, later that same year, Mexico has modern building codes, but inconsistent enforcement of those codes. They suffered a, an earthquake of about the same magnitude, 361 fatalities. So 9,361, just by having the more modern codes. And then just a few years later, Alaska had an earthquake, same magnitude, but actually, actually a little closer to the population center where they had modern building codes and robust enforcement, zero fatalities. So it is possible to demonstrate that regulation can succeed and it does succeed on a regular basis. Now, how do you get to, to successful regulation? Well, uh, it is not something that automatically happens just by putting some words down in a book. Uh, the, the, the rules on the books are important, but effective regulation, successful regulation is an active process. And it's also an active process of balancing. And I wanna just close by uh, highlighting a model that I've been teaching for uh, a number of years now that we developed through a project on uh, regulatory excellence at the Penn Program on Regulation. And we uh, scoured the, 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 the countryside, the, the, the globe for people's assessments of what makes for an excellent regulator. And we boiled it down to really three basic ideas or what I call three atoms in a molecule called regex. And the first of these atoms, I think everybody really recognizes, and I call it stellar competence. A, a safety regulator needs to make sure that safety actually delivers. A banking regulator needs to make sure that banks stay solvent. That's obvious. Uh, second thing is not always uh, so obvious, but, uh, but it's also important, and that is integrity. Uh, so stellar competence and the utmost integrity is the second atom of excellence. And that means a regulator that's not captured uh, that by the industry that's working in the public interest, uh, that's following the laws, that's not corrupt. All these are aspects of the integrity of a regulator. And the third, Adam, which may be the one that regulators often overlook more readily, and that's what I call empathic engagement, the Adam of empathic engagement. Regulators need to interact with the industry, but also with the broader public. They need to be even-handed, they need to listen, they need to be responsive to what the broader public is saying. And, and these are, I, I, I look at these as atoms within a molecule because they're all linked together. Through empathic engagement, regulators can learn how to be more competent. Uh, by empathic engagement, they can demonstrate their integrity and so forth. All of these are interrelated. And the performance ultimately and the success of a regulator relies on an active, constant, continual pursuit of regulatory excellence of trying to, to maintain integrity, competence, and engagement at the highest and most consistent levels. Thank you. Thanks so much for that. Uh, well, that's some concrete examples of how difficult regulation is in practice. Uh, thank you very much. Finally, Walter, over to you. You need to unmute Walter, I think. That's better. You, that was fascinating, Carrie. Thank you very much for that. I love the art, the idea of a, an art of successful regulation. And I, 
I must say, my uh, my take on the art of successful regulation is not to be there when things blow up um, and expose uh, the the mismatch between the expectations that everybody has of you uh, and your capacity to actually deal with it. Um, I'm going to talk a bit a little bit about the financial services industry and with uh, apologies to Deirdre, who was uh, um, <clears throat> on the board of the FSA when I was trying to manage the financial ombudsman service. And I particularly want to talk about the culture of the, uh, the industry by reference to um, uh, the incident of, uh, uh, of um, payment protection insurance sales, which Carrie may not know about, but Basically, what happened was that the industry uh, discovered how profitable it was to sell people uh, insurance linked to loans that um, might uh, pay off their, uh, or wouldn't necessarily pay off, but uh, would pay some of their repayments um, if they fell ill or lost their jobs. It was also hugely profitable. The Competition Commission uh, later found uh, that um, the return on equity of uh, some of the of, of, of payment protection sales was uh, was just under five hundred percent. Well, you you'd have to do very well somewhere else to to get that kind of money. Well, not surprisingly, a lot of uh, a huge burden fell on the Financial Ombudsman Service to deal with masses of complaints. And I was pressing the FSA, the regulator, to take action, as this was obviously an industry-wide problem that needed regulation, and we couldn't deal with it individually. But the banks were all at it together, and they found comfort in being all in it together. And they seemed to have little to fear. I remember a conversation with a senior official at the bank, and I told him that he must surely know that this was a toxic product, a consumer ripoff, and surely his banks should stop selling it. Well, we can't stop alone, he said, because our competitors would carry on and we would lose out. Uh, he said, well, I think the regulator should stop, uh, step in and, uh, and stop us all. I just thought, well, uh, what, how cynical can you be? Uh, he certainly didn't like it when I compared this to the uh, gang of burglars protesting that their burglary would certainly stop if only the police would intervene. Uh, it took another nine months before the FSA finally did. Another recollection points to the question of whether the FSA at the time was just too big. And this is a question, you know, is your regulator the size that it ought to be to cope with things or, or is it just too big? I remember a particular incident where we needed a decision from the FSA. We worked collaboratively with the SA, FSA. Uh, and I asked to, uh, asked to find out exactly, how, you know, roughly when we might expect to have a decision. I thought it might be a week or so. Um, we were staggered by the reply. Um, an official came back to us and said that we would get the uh, answer in precisely 46 days. Uh, a FSA colleague could work out exactly how long it would take to get through the hierarchy in order to give us a decision. So even brilliant and committed regulatory officials can be defeated by the ponderous size and scope of the creature in which they operate. Uh, and it's no 
joke for them to try to work within a, an organization which isn't well structured for the for their for their needs um and of course it has since been broken up into two um for may not be I, i'm not sure that the reasons really were because people recognized the size was too big but anyway uh, i'll mention another regulator a small regulator which i found itself in trouble the F human fertilization and embryology authority um is a very small regulator regulating the fertility sector in the uk and i was on the board of the hfea when a high profile crisis erupted when the then chief uh, chief operating uh, chief executive authorized the police warrant to search the clinic of the country's richest and most successful fertility consultant uh, and almost uh, and also the uh, most combative and uh, reluctant to cooperate in being regulated i don't think i'm uh, mischaracterizing him uh, there uh, in order to comply uh, to get some compliance data which had been delayed over a very long period as a consequence it didn't help that a, the uh, a panorama uh, tv uh, team uh, filmed the the raid uh, the ceo left the chair resigned staff work all came to a halt other members of the board threatened to resign on top of this, a daily barrage of freedom of information requests exhausted our part-time data officer and million pound legal claims were launched that would potentially have bankrupted the authority. The whole authority consisted of about 30 people. Um, when I suppose the, when you're tiny uh, and you're trying to exercise powers which are there in your statute, uh, against someone who's reluctant or resistant to regulation, you don't feel very powerful anymore. I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much, Walter. Well, that's a, a salutary uh, tale there. Um, I'm, I'm going to um, open up, uh, first of all, for the panel uh, to have a discussion about some of the issues that have been raised. But one of the things that came through strongly to me is that um, that uh, the regulation is an asset uh, to uh, a sector uh, and indeed to a country, good regulation, in a way that um, unlike a lot of public services are providing public goods, uh, regulation often uh, pr provides the absence of a public bad. You know, it provides, uh, uh, as I think uh, Kerry mentioned, you know, uh, the fact that uh, planes don't crash uh, and that the air that you breathe is uh, safe and the food is too. And all, all of those things, which are obviously very hard to quantify. Uh, so that was one of the things that uh, came through to me. But, but maybe if I go back uh, through um, the other speakers and uh, you can just reflect on some of the things that the other speakers have said first before we come to some questions. Deidre, anything you, you'd like to say in response to some of the, the points others have made? Um, well, first of all, I, I love um, Carey's elegant encapsulation of successful regulation. You know, those, those three um, stellar competence, utmost integrity and empathetic engagement, which I, of course, managed to explode into five um, to, just to make it a bit more complicated. But I do think, I do think that um, if you can lay claim to those three things, you're a long way on. I think what Walter says is very interesting. Um, 
And I think, Walter, it kind of reflects exactly what I was saying about how difficult it is to regulate an industry where the industry does not actually perform to a code of ethics that is what the public would recognize as a code of ethics. And I, I have you know, reflected very long and hard on the Financial Services Authority and why it was so difficult um, to regulate financial services. And actually, I think still is quite difficult. Why is it that your bank chief did not see that there really ought to be competitive advantage in him being able to say, I am going to be completely open and honest with you. I'm not gonna sell you that product because it's rubbish and you don't need it. Um, why is it that that industry seems unable to take that approach rather than saying, you know, while the music's playing, you've got to dance, which was a, a, a quotation actually from Chuck Prince um, when he was running Citibank. Um, so I, I completely agree with that. And I think it, it is, it, it is actually the same thing I saw at Grenfell Towers. It's what I call a parent-child relationship on regulation, where the regulator is the parent and the child is the industry. And the child says, we'll do what you tell us to do. And by the way, we'll probably try and get around it if we possibly can, rather than taking personal responsibility for assessing the risks and working out how to avoid them and how to deliver a good service. And it is, it's, I, I fear that that parent-child relationship is um, far too prevalent in far too many industries. Thank you, Deirdre. Well, um, I, um, I was the chief executive of IPSA, the MPs regulator for six and a half years, and that parent-child uh, comment uh, rang a bell with me, I have, I'm afraid to say. <laughs> uh, Kerry, over to you. Well, it's an it's a apt metaphor and one I've used uh, myself in my book, Achieving Regulatory Excellence, in which I, I point out that the regulator's success ultimately is dependent upon someone else and someone else's behavior. And so all of those examples that I've pointed to about uh, you know, it, disasters and accidents occurring, you know, they can sometimes certainly be traced back to a regulator being asleep at the switch, being insufficiently vigilant and protective. But, you know, when we're dealing with regulation, we want to have banks and airlines and oil drills. And these are economic activities that produce social value. We just want to manage the risks. But rarely, I think, would it be said that regulation eliminates the risks altogether. So sometimes, uh, you know, bad events happen, even when the regulator is doing all that the regulator could reasonably be expected to do. And, and it's a little bit like a parent too. I think, you know, probably most of us know someone who is just a really wonderful parent, perfect, attentive, and has a child who grows up to be ungrateful or, uh, or irresponsible. And then there's some uh, examples, of course, of, of people who grow up, unfortunately, in very difficult circumstances where they don't have good parenting and they're quite uh, upstanding and capable uh, and successful people. The point is that ultimately the, um, the successful regulator is in a relationship with the regulated entity and, and it's not always a one-to-one -one situation, but in, in the sense that everything that the good or bad that the regulated industry does is connected to what the regulator is doing. So, you know, before the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, three weeks before that, President Obama 
had given a speech in which he extolled the, uh, the, the fact that for, uh, I think, over a decade or more, there had not been a major oil spill in the United States. And he was giving credit to the regulator in that case when, uh, you know, just a few weeks later, we realized the regulator didn't really deserve that uh, credit. And, and, and the regulator in that case, I mean, it's a case example of how not to be a successful regulator. I mean, after the fact, they found out that the Minerals Management Service had employees who were not only fraternizing with uh, the industry representatives, but they were, uh, you know, some of them engaging in sexual relations. They had inspectors who were seeking jobs from the industry the same firms that they were going out and inspecting. Uh, they saw that actually the number of inspections had gone down, that the regulator was very lax in its view, review of emergency response planning, that uh, it hadn't updated the regulations for years. So, I mean, the, the point is about parenting, in, in some sense, it's, it's good and a bad. You can, you can try to be a good parent, but ultimately, uh, it is some separate entity there, and uh, your success as a regulator, though, is is tied to to that industry. And the last point I would make about the industry too is that we should not ever assume that the industry is monolithic. There are going to be variations among firms in most industries. Some being more conscientious and socially responsible than others. Some might be the the kind of uh, uh, of, of, of child, if you will, that seeks to follow the rules to the letter maybe, but, but not follow the spirit and evade them. We had a Volkswagen a few years ago uh, trying to evade diesel engine emissions regulations in the US and around the world, for example. Uh, so sometimes uh, that, 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 there's, 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 there's good and there's bad apples within an industry. And what you know, regulators often have to do is try to ensure the good players that there's sufficient attention to and vigilance in overseeing the bad actors so that there's a level playing field uh, for competition. Excellent, thank you. Uh, any uh, quick responses from uh, you, Walter, before we go to some questions? Um, I'll just bring up a slightly different uh, area because uh, as you uh, as we played out some of these uh, scenarios of uh, uh, of mini disasters happening or regulators having to cope with serious problems, they've got behind them uh, government uh, and the relationship between the regulator and government and what the government expects of the regulator. Normally, the government just expects the regulator to get on with it. They've set up the regulator to take away these problems from uh, elected, uh, elected uh, representatives and hand them to uh, people who they, could be, they can trust to just get on with the job. Um, but then suddenly things don't go so well and uh, the, um, behind you, if you're the regulator, is a minister screaming at you and you're, you're saying, well, actually you, supposed, you gave us these powers telling us that we should, be, we should act independently uh, to carry out our job. And uh, you know, you're not supposed to be telling us uh, to, uh, how to do the job. Uh, on the other hand, the, uh, of course, the minister can say, well, frankly, if you don't do the job we want you to do, uh, we'll abolish you. 
or we'll just trim your, um, your powers or we'll set up something different. And regulators, like any other institution, has a feel for self-preservation. And that then steams into play to make the regulator nervous, anxious, uh, and um, necessarily um, wonder quite the extent to which it can play a part in the public domain and defend itself and say, we're, we're doing this, uh, this job perfectly properly. There's a, there can sometimes be a really quite difficult tension between um, uh, a regulator and uh, the government that set it up, uh, or at least it may not be the, the same party that set it up. It's uh, the, the a new party will want to come in and demonstrate it's going to do something different. Uh, in which case, indeed, that's what's happening in financial services in the UK. The Conservative government came in and uh, decided to cut the FSA in two, um, partly, and I think that was partly a political decision. So um, I think there are, there are other skills at work in managing upwards uh, that a regulator needs to have in order to be successful. Thanks. Would it be okay uh, to add one, one point, uh, on Walter? I think it's an excellent point about that relationship between government and the regulator. And I too often the government sets up the regulator, but then doesn't provide it with sufficient resources and, uh, and sometimes maybe even sufficient legal authority that yep. they need to really seriously deal with the problem. Yeah, it's just not been framed quite adequately. Yeah. Well, well that, that leads into a question that's uh, come through on the chat uh, from Sanjeev, um, which I'll ask uh, um, straight away because it's quite relevant to what we've just discussed. And then I'll hand over to Abby because uh, we've got a set of questions about the, ring, the link with consumers, which uh, Deirdre first uh, raised and, and, and is a theme that's come through in the questions as well. But first Sanjeev's question, uh, on the back of what you've just said, Walter, he asks, uh, is it appropriate for regulators to be answerable to parliament rather than ministers? Perhaps uh, in, in a way to answer that point that you've just made. Well, parliament's pretty busy and they don't necessarily have time to um, listen to uh, regulators all the, uh, who might uh, very much enjoy the experience of, uh, of being of uh, talking to Parliament because that might allow them to share some of their uh, their concerns, but uh, not many ministers would necessarily like that um, because uh, the almost certainly this would uh, re you know, reverse onto um, uh, to uh, querying the uh, querying the uh, the minister. Although I have to say my my. Uh, a recollection, and Deirdre may or may not remember this, is that, that uh, when one of these um, financial crises was at the height of its um, <coughs> problems, I was summoned along with the senior, uh, the chief executive, then, then chief executive of the FSA, uh, to give evidence to parliamentary select committee. Um, and uh, I'm afraid to say my colleague from the, well, the FSA uh, chief executive got a huge, real hammering um, and the um, chairman of the select committee then turned to me and said, well, um, uh, we hear everything's being managed as well as you possibly can uh, the, with the, um, uh, the financial ombudsman service. Uh, Mr. Merrick, is there anything else you want to add? Um, <coughs> uh, to which my uh, FSA colleague whispered, I'm never coming here with you again. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I think yes, there's a there is a case for um, uh, for uh, regulators from time to time um, uh, having a stage uh, where they can communicate directly with um, elected representatives um, and preferably ones that are well well briefed do understand what the uh, sector is all about do understand what what the regulator can uh, can really do and um, what it can't do and have have a reasonable set of expectations uh, of, of what could be achieved thanks um, and did, did, did you I mean, want to come in on this yes i i do want to because um i actually felt quite answerable to parliament just following up Walter, in the sense that you can be summoned to select committees, both in the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and really done over in quite a major way. And of course, then that, if it's controversial, that will go into the press. But I just want to go back to the fact that um, regulators were originally set up because some of the decisions they were going to take were very long running decisions and needed decades um, of, um, of uh, stability as opposed to politicians whose timescale is often rather shorter. I think one of the difficulties in the relationship with ministers is that, is that ministers often regret the power they've given away. Um, and if I give you an example of that, um, I, I chaired the Food Standards Agency, and at the time we were both responsible for the safety of food and for nutrition. Completely sensible. Um, food safety problems kill 750 people a year. Nutritional problems at that stage were killing about three quarters of a million people a year. So clearly, uh, nutrition is a safety issue. But actually, we got to be rather successful at it. And it became a sort of political issue. And the government thought, actually, we want this. We don't see why these people should have it. And what's more, we quite like to make some decisions that are not necessarily all that scientific, but are really very popular. And one of the consequences of that was that the, the, the then government took away those powers because actually it had, it had just become politically kind of slightly uncomfortable for them. So I think, I think that issue of ministers just regretting what they've given away in terms of long-term stability is actually quite key and I think is, is a challenge to regulation. Yeah, um, I agree with that uh, completely. And um, a lot of regulators uh, value their independence massively, and indeed some of them are not uh, reporting directly to ministers, but only indirectly, they're, they're non-ministerial bodies of one kind or other, like Ofsted, but uh, but it's a it's a difficult relationship. I don't know, Kerry, whether you want to come in on this before I move on to the consumer questions. It, I just would add, it, it is like so much in the world of regulation and, and, and of successful regulation, a question of balance. Uh, there are across the world regulators that are formally structured to be independent, but are not operating that way. And then there are there are regulators that don't have formal legal independence, but do have a good bit of operational autonomy. And I think, in my view, ultimately that's where to get to get to the the appropriate level of autonomy, which is a balancing question to be responsive to elected officials, but also sufficiently autonomous so that uh, you're making decisions in the long-term public interest, as Deirdre said. That's very well put. Thank you very much, Kerry. Um, Abby, can I come to you? Because we've had four, I think, three or four questions uh, related to consumer issues. Do you want to just uh, summarise them for the panel? 
Yeah, sure. So Linda asks, um, is there a good way to get public input in, into regulations without creating administrative burden? And then Kevin asks, how should regulators keep the interests of cu customers at heart and focus on the issues that the people feel vulnerable to rip-offs? And then I'm just going to ask John to unmute because um, he had a very long question. Thanks, Abby. Um, my question is this. In evidence to the Cullen inquiry, which followed the Ladbroke Grove rail crash, Deirdre Hutton, who was representing the National Consumer Council, said, and I quote, the regulator must on a continuing basis have an easy and effective method of ensuring that the voice of the public in putting their case is heard every bit as clearly as the various voices of the industry, unquote. So my question is how best can the views of the public be discovered and synthesized when the public very often have a very imperfect understanding of the complexity of the issues involved and may hold a wide variety of often inconsistent and conflicting opinions themselves. Excellent. Thank you very much for that, John, and uh, to you, Abby. So, uh, so clearly, uh, a lot of a lot of those questions, uh, Didri, you'll have uh, you'll have a view on, uh, given your various roles. Um, I don't know if you want to go first, or would you like um, uh, to hand over to somebody whilst you think about your reply? I'm just so grateful that my quote from all those years ago doesn't sound stupid. You know. <laughs> <laughs> It's always a worry when somebody, John, when somebody, uh, somebody quotes you back at you. Um, look, I, I, I have two views of this. I mean, I, I do think that, that there has been a tendency for regulators to regulate the wrong thing. And they've regulated the wrong thing because they think it's what the problem is. And they haven't actually asked consumers what it is that consumers find difficult. Um, you know, we've moved a very, very long way in... Um, in um, consultation um, and the use of, of focus groups and, and um, citizens juries and different techniques for uh, consultation, I think are actually now very effective. And I've certainly seen uh, some of that taking place. And I think you have to try and distinguish, and I think it's a point you made, John, you have to try and distinguish between the individual consumer want and what is in the consumer interest as a whole. And what I as a regulator am trying to do is to cater for the, for the broad interests of consumers. Um, on the whole, the way I can do that best is by promoting, or not promoting, that's the wrong word, by ensuring that there is a, um, a viable, responsive, competitive industry which can respond to consumer wants. But you have to, you have to talk to the public in sophisticated ways to understand um, what it is they're having trouble with. Um, I think the other thing is we talked about risk. Um, and I always have this question about, you know, regulators are there to, to mitigate risk, but actually whose risk is it anyway? The risk actually belongs to the public. Um, there is no point in my regulating according, uh, according to a level of risk that I think is right. Actually, risk is a societal construct and it is up to the public to say, I am happy to bear this level of risk for this sort of gain. So as a regulator, you've got to be very, very attuned to what in the public mind is an acceptable level of risk. And if I go back to aviation, it is clearly not acceptable if planes crash. I mean, it is such a shocking thing to happen. Whereas on the road industry, cars crash all the time and nobody frankly takes much notice um, unless it gets to an intolerable level. But you really have to understand that risk appetite of the public 
um, in, in order to make sure that you're regulating to the right level. And the only way you can do that is by asking them and then making sure, sure that this comes back to the culture of, of the regulators, making sure that the regulator then actually believes them and operates according to the information that they're being given. And over the whole of my career, my experience of consumers is that on the whole, they're extremely sensible. Thanks very much, Kerry. Uh, everything that Deirdre said. <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I, I, I'll add three, three points that are, are I, I, I hope, compatible, really, I think are compatible. Uh, first, uh, I think regulators, to be successful in this way, need to remember that regulation is about people. It's in service of people. Um, and, and that that, that's a wide range of people. It's certainly the people whose daily lives are affected by regulation. And I know that's true for me. And I ask my students to think about how every day their lives are affected by regulation. If they drove to the school in a car that was regulated by safety regulations, they, they have food and water and electricity and all of that. So, I mean, people are really at the center. And I, I would urge regulators to always put people at the center. And you've got to do that. If you, if you can't do that, then um, you know, all the rest is going to be difficult. The second thing I would say is you have to work at, um, at, at soliciting viewpoints, especially if you want a wide range of, of perspectives and you wanna hear also from, from the individual consumers who are benefiting from regulation, you have to work at, you have to be active and deliberate. Now that doesn't mean that on every single decision you make, you have to do a citizen jury or, or a survey or a focus group, but you need to be thinking about it and really actively uh, uh, working at it. And the third thing I would say, and it's sort of related to the second one, is that you really need to approach the empathic engagement part of regulatory excellence with sincerity. I think many regulators view engagement as a box checking exercise and and, and, and or, or just uh, going through the motions, they already know what they wanna do. And I can tell you that people can figure that out pretty quickly. Uh, if, the, if the regulator's really not interested, that shows. So I think a, to, to be uh, effective in hearing the voices of consumers, you have to be sincere and earnest and, and really open-minded and wanting to learn and listen. Uh, if, if you're going to be successful in hearing on an even-handed basis, the full range of views of people who are affected by regulation. Thanks, Gary. Anything well, to add, Walter? Well, just put a, a, a slightly contrary um, notion into the mix here. Um, I think regulators need to ask themselves, what would happen if we weren't here? Um, a lot of the world would carry on fine. Uh, a lot of the sector that we're currently regulated would carry on delivering things perfectly fine. Um, and are we, if we are gonna be here, are we really um, adding value? Um, we're certainly costing money and that eventually gets paid by consumers. Um, are we regulating the things that we really need to be regulating? Are we just regulating the things that were thought to be important uh, two years ago, five years ago, or even just last week, when really our focus should be elsewhere. Uh, because it's very easy to get into a pattern 
as, as a regulator uh, that is particularly an inspectorate type regulator uh, that uh, goes on demanding data inspections uh, of things which frankly don't need um, uh, being inspected to the degree that they perhaps once were. Um, and the data is frankly, um, uh, well, again, my, my recollection is, uh, again, uh, excuse me, Deirdre, Deirdre um, the, <coughs> the Financial Services Authority uh, rig, uh, asked, we sent them our data um, uh, all, um, every month. And I'm afraid to say we were convinced that nobody actually read it. Um, uh, frankly, that may have been, they may have been sensible not to waste their time reading our, our data. Um, but um, we, I suppose we were rather proud of it and we thought that there were the lessons that could be learned out of it. But, um, you know, regulators ha have a damn difficult time focusing their, their um, attention on the things that really matter and not on the things that mattered last month or last year uh, and being capable of switching uh, their attention rapidly around uh, regulators I mean many companies uh, have damn difficult time suddenly switching their attention from one set one market to another or serious changes in a market or com competitors coming along and stealing their market share um, regulators need to, to be at least as agile uh, in their capacity to suddenly move. Uh, and that's not an easy thing to do if you're a public institution. Thanks, Walter. Um, now, um, I've got a couple of questions about enforcement that I'll hand over to Abby for, and then uh, we've got a few questions on the related issue of regulatory capture, or uh, related to the issue of regulatory capture. But on enforcement first, Abby. Yeah, sure. So Sanjeev asks, is it ever possible for a regulator to take a zero tolerance approach to failure? And then I'm going to ask Lisa to ask a question. If you're there, Lisa, you can unmute yourself. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh, my question had to do with enforceability of regulations. I'm a former uh, state health department regulator in New York. And over on my career, one of the challenges is really developing something that's measurable and forcible that the public politicians and um, consumers really understand and can find effective. Do you have any uh, academic thoughts on enforceability in that regard? Uh, let me start with Kerry first. Sure. Uh, let me uh, on the zero tolerance. Actually, it builds, I think, on some uh, of, of Walter's comments just a minute ago about being agile. Uh, I think uh, the, the a zero tolerance uh, uh, a notion means that it seems to me, unless you're ex expressly banning altogether some kind of economic activity it means that you've got to be vigilant and dynamic and agile. Uh, not only for the reasons that Walter was saying is that sometimes you can be adding burdens without actually getting any benefits. And I agree with that. Uh, but also because there may be uh, new risks that are coming along that you need to be attentive to and to really get a zero, get at least as an aspiration zero risk 
to use that as an aspiration, you've got to really be on your game and be dynamic. Why? Because uh, the you know the industry is changing, society's changing, technology's changing. There are new problems, new interactions. What are, what a successful regulator does, in my view, is what I call obligation management. <laughs> And that is, you think about regulations are imposing obligations or you're enforcing obligations to go to Lisa's question, uh, but you've got to be managing that, that pool of obligations so that you're imposing them where they're needed and no longer, you're alleviating them where they're no longer needed. Uh, you know, and I think one failure, if you wanna talk about a, 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 the opposite of successful regulation came uh, last year in the US at the beginning of the, uh, the, the COVID crisis, uh, we had researchers in Seattle where one of our early outbreaks occurred, trying to get some testing methods approved by our Food and Drug Administration. And the Food and Drug Administration was stuck in its normal mode of just trying to get, quite frankly, zero tolerance, right, for inaccurate tests. And they were demanding this extensive showing that under the circumstances meant there were several weeks very early on before there was widespread uh, you know, uh, spread of the virus throughout the country where maybe we could have tapped it down a little bit better. But, but there was a critical moment in which the FDA was sort of stuck in its usual mode. And, and it took weeks and weeks and weeks before it finally gave an exemption. And, and that, you know, that the, the idea that you can give, sometimes you need to give exemptions when the exigencies require is in a good example of this obligation management. Let me, on Lisa's question, I think there's definitely insufficient attention often to enforceability. Uh, too often, it's, it, I think it's assumed that we're going to put rules on the books and then people will follow them. Uh, I think some of the most important work that's being done uh, on regulation is thinking about how do we how do we make the connection between enforceability and rule design. Uh, Edward Chang has a really nice paper on structural laws, which says the more you can sort of think about hardwiring compliance, the better. Uh, you know, a good example is how uh, when we used to have leaded and unleaded gasoline, uh, that the nozzles were of a different size for the leaded gasoline. So it, you couldn't actually put it in a car that needed to take unleaded gasoline and, 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 and it would protect the catalytic converter. If you can hardwire, that's great. Uh, another uh, important line of work is being done by Cynthia Giles, who's a former head of enforcement for the US EPA. And she's really looking at uh, a wider range of, of sensing technologies and other uses of of high-tech tools to aid in enforcement. And we're also seeing, I should just mention also, that we're seeing a, on the enforcement side, a good bit of use as well as controversy uh, about the use of artificial intelligence in uh, aiding regulatory enforcement. Uh, goodness me, well, that's a, that's a big topic, uh, which we may come back to another time. Uh, I'll come uh, to you, Walter, and then Deirdre on the, uh, on the question of enforcement and then move on. Well, again, this is a lot to do, isn't it, with the culture of the industries that you're trying to regulate and the extent to which uh, they will um, pick up lessons that you've, um, you've uh, from enforcement. Um, 
uh, if you try and wave a big stick around and uh, and say this is going to be a mark of our serious disapproval um, and everybody else should really um, take note of it and uh, should uh, learn a lesson out of this but that we're likely to do this again to other in those uh, who uh, are guilty of other infractions um, my experience I was uh, on the board of the gambling commission for a number of years and I, I think the number of uh, what we thought were substantial fines that we inflicted on um, um, members of the gambling industry uh, just went up and up, but they, uh, they never seemed to learn the lessons that the other, we, we, we told them all, look, look at this, look at what we've just done to one of your colleagues. Um, we'll do it to you if you don't get your act together. Um, well, um, the, the, um, uh, the, the culture seemed to be, well, we'll um, it, they won't get us this time. Um, and uh, in any event, it cost us too much to put in protections to stop the kind of thing the regulator wants to stop. Um, and so we'll, we'll take our chances. So in, getting the balance of enforcement is not, not easy. And particularly because ultimately, uh, if people are, do not want to comply or re reckon uh, that the cost of compliance is greater than the other than the risk of having to pay um, pay enforcement fines. Well, what can you do? Um, you're, you're a regulator that's uh, regulating the unregulatable. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there are answers that uh, regulators will need to come up with. Deirdre, on on that point or others on on the enforcement side. Well, look, it is far too common for um, politicians in particular, who I love dearly, um, to um, call for regulation without any thought as to whether it's enforceable or not. And any, I think a good regulator needs to be really clear that if I can't enforce this, I am not going to put this rule into place. Um, I, a slightly different point. I think we've talked a lot about understanding consumers, but actually regulators do also need to understand the industry they're regulating. Because for a very basic reason, and it relates to enforceability, um, if you try to enforce a regulatory regime, which is completely counter to the way that the industry normally operates, then frankly, you are pushing a boulder uphill, which is going to come down and crash you all the time. So if you can regulate with the grain of the market, um, and it goes back to what Kerry said about hard wiring in, but it, you know there are softer versions of that as well. But you regulate with the grain of the market, you've got a much better chance I think of making something happen. The only other point I would say is that, uh, and again, I would second Walter's point that um, you know you can you can ratchet up the fines like anything. I remember when I first joined the Financial Services Authority and thinking that private pensions mis-selling um, was going to cost the industry in fines, reparations, etc., eleven billion pounds, and I thought, oh well. You know, surely that that's good. That is really enough to make them think again and behave properly. Well, how naive of me. I was wrong. You know? But you think that 11 billion pounds was enough. But what what has struck me, lat um, you know, over the years is that actually by far with these big companies that just see it as the cost of doing business, by far the most effective thing is negative publicity. And my biggest rouse at um, 
the Civil Aviation Authority were usually with Michael O'Leary over, the, the, over whether they were giving uh, customers a good time at Ryanair. Um, and they really minded about bad publicity, as do as did all the airlines, actually. And that's a, you know, it's quite a smart way of doing it. You might also okay. think about personal liability, too. I mean, a lot of time when you're, pe you're, you're putting fines on a company, they're not really borne by the people who are actually responsible for for overseeing the company. Yeah, that's a fair point. That is a fair point. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes the fine, uh, you know, is the cost of doing business, but it's right. the uh, bad publicity that goes with it that actually hurts, uh, as Deirdre right. says. And um, you're often putting the fines on on the shoulders of people who, who are there now, but weren't there at the time when the misdeeds were being carried out. Right, right. Yeah. Well, when I, when I was regulating MPs, uh, I couldn't really find them because it was all coming out of the public purse anyway. Uh, but oh my goodness, the publicity they didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, Abby, let, let me come to you. We've got three questions in the general area of regulatory capture. Yeah, sure. So John asks, is it ever acceptable for regulators to be funded by the same industry they regulate? Rosemary asks, how to manage the conflict inherent in needing industry experience in the regulator so the regulator may pick up the deadbeats or regulators may be seeking jobs in the industry? And then I'm going to get Ed with Wilkinson to ask his question. Um, yeah, hi, thank you uh, for your talk, guys. Um, my question is, uh, there's been a lot of dialogue recently on uh, sort of the pervasiveness of regulatory capture, like recently, um, the one of the executives of the Times was like head of the board to pick the new um, chair of the, I can't remember what the specific regulatory agency is, but the chair of that regulatory agency. Um, I'm wondering how this can be limited when um, often to be an expert within a field, um, you inherently build strong links within either the private industry or people within the private industry, either through experience uh, or like having gone to the same schools. Thanks very much, uh, Edward. Um, right, uh, shall I start with you, Walter, this time, and then go Deirdre and then Kerry? Okay, well, I think uh, the, the, the many of the regulators that I've been involved with um, are funded from uh, industry levies. Um, and, uh, and uh, of course, uh, it's a it's a fairly easy jibe to say you're you're paid by the people um, who um, your salary comes out of the um, uh, out of the money that the uh, the industry uh, pays you so you're in their pocket aren't you um, to which the only retort is do you think this money should come out of taxpayers money uh, uh, um, and and really in in many cases no. Is he ought to be the answer to that? No, this is uh, the the this industry ought to pay for its own regulation. Um, uh, I'd be very interested to, to hear from Deirdre because, uh, of course, the uh, food standards agency was paid uh, paid for out of public funds, whereas uh, perhaps it was a matter of uh, difficulty. How would you collect the money out of all from all the different sectors of the of the food industry? But I, I, so I don't think there's an issue of great principle there. Um, uh, it, it's often, I guess, a matter of practicality as to how you how how things could be funded. Um, but broad, a broad principle that the industry an industry ought to pay for its own regulation uh, is, I think, a relatively sound one. And as for jobs, yes, I think that um, 
it's uh, it is a good thing generally for a certain number of um, regulatory staff to have experience of, of the industry they regulate. Um, uh, they will know the tricks of the trade. Uh, they'll know um, where the bodies are buried. Uh, sorry, I'm. I, I better stop the metaphors here. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but. Uh, I do think that's sensible. I think there's a mixture to be had of people who are outside, who come from outside the industry, um, and who can bring completely fresh minds uh, to uh, to uh, to matters. Um, so, uh, so those are the comments I'd make on on those those issues. Um, um, yeah, the regulatory capture is a is a um, is is tricky, um, and it's often difficult to um, uh, to have the right kind of relationships with uh, with regulators. And obviously, Kerry gave us examples of how bad things can get, uh, and how cosy things can get uh, in in a in a wholly inappropriate way. Okay, thanks, Walter. Um, I think I said I'd come to you, Deirdre, next. Yeah, thank you. Um Basically, I think there's a fundamental misconception that that um, being um, paid by industry is much worse than being paid by government. Um, sorry, it's slightly controversial, but um, having experienced both, uh, I would say that there was less interference when paid by industry than there was when paid by government. Um, partly because if you're pay if the industry is paying for you, take the CAA as an example, you can disperse the payment across many different types of paid for service and many different bodies, you know, airlines, air tour companies, airfields, so that no one body, no one part of that industry has an overall or would, would feel that it could have an overall control. Um, the, the problem about being paid for wholly by government is when government um, forgets the self-discipline of you being an independent regulator and actually wants to tell you what to do. And that is an extremely tricky situation if your money is dependent um, on, on a minister who is telling you to do something that you think in regulatory terms is actually wrong. So I, I, I think you, whoever you, I would prefer to be paid by industry, but I think you have to put safeguards in place to make sure that that payment is sufficiently dispersed into different, into different pockets of payment. Um, I'm absolutely with Walter. You you need the skills. You don't want you don't want me not to have people um, working in the in the aviation regulator um, that don't understand aeroplanes. You think about the Max that that um, crashed mm. twice, um, mm. and the CAA has just made the decision to put that plane back in the air. Do you really want not to have people who understand how that plane works? You know, it just seems to me self-evident that in these life and death regulators, you absolutely need the people who, who really understand the industry. But I think what that then comes down to is you also need to ensure that you have the diversity of people, that you can kind of dilute that a bit, um, and you need to have the culture. And I absolutely believe completely passionately that culture starts with, with the chairman, the chief executive, and the board. 
and the culture that you set will permeate right through the organization. And of course, you have to set up the, the mechanisms to make sure that what you want as a board is happening throughout the organization. But it is what is to me, you know, God, I'm at the end of an extremely long career. And one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating is that there isn't a kind of, you know, one structure that works. It is an unbelievably ad hominem business. It depends on the people at the top being clear about what the right thing is and doing it and illustrating it and making sure that their organization does it. Excellent, thank you very much, Kerry. Yeah, I, I wanna echo uh, what uh, Deirdre has just said. There's, you know, the, there's a real disjunction between formal structures and arrangements and the practical realities. And a lot of that, that disjunction is filtered by what the people in the organization are doing. So we could look at, uh, the Minerals Management Service, again, in the U.S., which uh, was overseeing offshore oil and gas drilling. Uh, and, and, and they were, they were certainly uh, benefiting from government funding. Uh, we could compare that with the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., which has industry paying uh, fees for the review of new, new products. Um, and I think at the end of the day, how... As long as there's not some very strong uh, incentive to, uh, to 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 counteract, uh, you know, the, the the mission of the agency from from the way it's being financed, and quite frankly, in the Minerals Management Service, there was an interesting little arrangement. They had two missions. One is to collect the tax revenues from every gallon of of oil that was extracted, and then to to to, to oversee safety. And that was a little bit jarring too, even though there wasn't a funding sort of tie into the agency, there can be ways that these things, things can, can make it harder for the people managing the organization to, to set the right tone. But I think, I think it's possible if, if, if you have uh, the right leadership. I will also say one other thing too, is that uh, we shouldn't assume that industry always is opposed to regulation. Uh, we've gone through in four years of administration that was in example after example, uh, trying to, to, to lighten regulations even farther than the industry wanted. The auto industry was resisting actually and opposed to additional uh, repeals of fuel efficiency regulations. We had uh, and, and, and I think still have an interest in our pharmaceutical industry having robust safety approval for COVID vaccines uh, by the Food and Drug Administration. So industry does, uh, you know, have some degree of interest in having robust regulation. And the, the key with the funding is just to make sure that that, that uh, there's adequate funding, first of all, and that and sometimes that's the way you get it is through industry fees and not through annual appropriations, which can 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 be highly inconsistent or or insufficient, uh, and, and and through effective leadership of the organization. Thanks, Gary. Yes, uh, very good point that um, the good reg regulation app actually helps good providers of services, good businesses, um, exactly as you say. Right, we've, we've got through about half of the questions. Uh, there, is, there, there are still lots to go, but I'm just going to end with two more topical ones, uh, if that's all right. Over to you, Abby. 
Yeah, so David asks, do any of the panel have any thoughts on today's announcement from Ofqual on teacher assessments versus regulated exams? And then Ruth asks, will the online harms bill regulator be big enough to take on the tech giants? So uh, maybe slightly unfair on you, Kerry, uh, that uh, uh, <laughs> uh, there was an announcement today uh, that, um, that exams, uh, which were a little bit of a, well, I mean, goodness me, there's a whole story here about uh, the exams uh, regulation last year, uh, but this year is going to be teacher assessment rather than uh, through exams. Um, and then there's a question about big tech, which is obviously topical in the Australian context, um, uh, and how that, how big tech, you know, global companies like those uh, should be uh, regulated. So, um, uh, Deirdre, do you want to go first on this one? And then I'll go to Walter and then Kerry. Um, I'm almost entirely going to duck out. Um, I on, on the off-qual issue, I mean, the whole business of exams is so difficult. And I, I have to say, I feel absolutely heart sorry for these um, students who've been working towards their exams and, you know, for ages didn't know whether they were going to have them. Now they're going to be teacher assessment and last year's were a mess. So you have to feel really, really sorry for these, for these young people. Um, on the whole, I think it is better to have teacher assessment than inadequate um, inadequate exams. Um, so, but clearly, whatever system you use, there has to be a good a good means of appeal, and and moderation for those results. So, I'm afraid that that's not a you know I'm not I I don't know enough about the area. I'm afraid to be more helpful than that. The online harms bill, I think, is really interesting. Um, you know, I kind of liken the 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 the, the tech companies a bit to. Um, the stuff that's happening in aviation, that it's, you know, it is completely new. Um, and we none of us know quite how to deal with it. And a lot of the tech stuff is really wild west. Um, and we've got to find a way of taming it. Um, and, and it is going to be very difficult. And I will be extremely surprised if what is set up in the online harms bill is still what we've got in 10 or 15 years time. Because actually, understanding what's needed and understanding what what is happening out there and what the companies are capable of doing is going to change really quite radically over the next decade or so and i think quite properly the regulator uh, will have to change as well and usually um, that means setting up a new body when the, the existing one is seen to fail this is an area where there will be failure regulators will fail because actually the industry is moving faster than they are um, and the regulator will be playing catch up. So I think, yeah, look for change in this area. Thank you. Walter. Well, on the off-qual, um, I'm not going to talk about whether the decision is right or wrong or whether, it's, uh, whether it could have been different. The really interesting thing, of course, is what the relationship between the Secretary of State for Education and off-qual over the last 18 months. Um, where um, the, there, was a, there was a public row between the two um, this time last year, or oh, sorry, it wasn't quite this time, but it was, it was in the middle of last year about what would happen. Um, and that row was played out in the most vicious and unpleasant way um, uh, before, uh, before everybody. And that was a, um, it was not an unpleasant, it was not a pleasant thing to see. Um, that, um, uh, that the uh, the 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 
expert body set up to uh, make uh, judgments about these things um, was um, pressured and, and pushed by the Secretary of State. So, uh, and whether they played their cards right or not, I'm not, not in a position to really to judge, but everybody had a chance to, to observe it. Online harms, I take an interest in this area through my press involvement because uh, the uh, certainly the online um, news industry is going to be affected by, uh, potentially affected by this indeed, well, indeed the mainstream news industry insofar as it runs websites and has um, uh, comment uh, columns that are um, available for people to uh, to comment on. That's all going to be uh, added to the massive burdens that are already on the shoulders of Ofcom. Um, and I come back to my question about whether Ofcom, uh, whether the size of the uh, regulator is is going to be called into question. Well, obviously, Ofcom already has a huge span of responsibility uh, from <clears throat> things like postal services, uh, telecoms, mobile phones, uh, ordinary phones, um, uh, television, broadcasting, radio spectrum, um, the, the, the range of responsibilities that already falls on, off, uh, on Ofcom, including the BBC, um, uh, to take on this uh, regulation of, um, of online harms um, is going to extend its remit in a way that it's going to be very stretching for it. Um, will it have the, um, the uh, resources to do it, the expertise to do it? I echo everything that Deirdre said about the, um, the difficulties that will be faced there and whether uh, success can be matched um, uh, well, can be achieved in a way that uh, matches expectations. Thanks, Walter. Finally, Kerry. Sure, I think it's a great pairing of questions because in some sense, I think they highlight a challenge for uh, a world in which we'll probably increasingly have industry that's based in algorithms and governments, quite frankly, that are deploying algorithms. And uh, I don't know that we've developed yet the right scale or, or speed of response as a society to these kinds of changes that we're seeing in, in digital social media platforms, algorithms, artificial intelligence. On the one hand, uh, we see governments sometimes embracing these uh, algorithmic approaches too quickly before uh, really thinking through the full ramifications of their choices and, and really vetting it with well with uh, the public. Uh, on the other hand, I think we see uh, probably with social media companies, you know, a, 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 a delay, a, a difficulty in developing a social consensus on how to define and understand the problems. And, and until we can get a better moderation of not, you know, leaping before you look, but also not looking forever, uh, you know, we're going to struggle with these technologies. And I think, um, you know, it's not so much a, a, in, always a struggle with the regulator, but really with society and with developing proper social uh, or a, a sufficiently coherent social consensus about how to how to move forward in this new era of algorithmic uh, uh, or an algorithmic economy and algorithmic governance. 
Thank you. Uh, well, that's uh, that's a very good uh, point to end with, that it's not just about the regulators, actually about our whole uh, society. We've moved so fast on the tech side over the last few years. It is a bit of a wild west, as Deirdre says, and all of us are struggling uh, to uh, understand the new etiquette, really, and uh, and that and that makes it hard mm -hmm. to regulate because there's a, such a divergence of, of views about what's appropriate. Um, I'm just going to look to the panel to see if there's any final points that anybody wants to make uh, before I... Uh, thank everybody. I'm just looking around. I can't see any any more points to be made. So um, I just want to say thank you to everybody who's attended. Uh, there was, um, I think, uh, about 80 odd uh, at one point. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for, for patching in. Uh, absolutely fascinating uh, conversation about uh, a number of aspects of regulation. Sorry to those of you who asked questions that weren't, that weren't answered. Um, I just want to thank Deirdre, Walter and Kerry for their time, uh, for their input. Um, thank you to UCL, obviously, uh, for organising the event and, and Abby. Uh, for fielding all the questions um, and doing all the tech side. I want to uh, give a little trailer for next week's seminar, which is on European perspectives on Brexit, uh, where we'll have for foreign correspondents from France, Germany, Italy and Poland talking about how Brexit is viewed from their respective countries, uh, which sounds very interesting indeed. That's six o'clock next Thursday. Uh, but uh, i just close by thanking again the speakers. Uh, I wish you all well, all three of you, uh, in your regulatory challenges. Um, and, um, and thank you again, everybody, for attending. Goodbye. <laughs>